India was their test bed because in the Keynesian era, that's what they did. They always attempted to raise interest rates. And the reason they do this is when the foreign companies come in, they don't want competition from Indian companies. So they invest here. And with higher interest rates, it's the small businesses actually find it tough to get some loans, get loans at a competitive rate. And this is, this is how they destroyed Latin America as well. They want a consumption-based economy. But then if you, have, if you see negative interest rates, you are not going to put your money in a bank. You are going to withdraw your money and keep it at home. But to prevent that, they have come up with the idea of cashless currency. So this is, this is an extremely dangerous idea and they are targeting India for this. And the way they are doing it is through USAID. USAID is involved in a lot of advisory um, project, uh, advisory roles and also in implementing some projects. They were involved in Aadhaar card. And we have to be extremely careful of anything that comes from them. Their goal is eventual control over Indian citizens. Then another idea is that's part of the new system is universal basic in income. They probably they would want 50%, around 50% of the population to be on welfare all the time. And this is going to destroy India because once you have universal basic income, it's like a reservation scheme. You can never roll it back. There are going to be riots to, uh, demanding we want to be included in the scheme. And eventually everyone is going to be dependent on the system and no longer self-sufficient. As you can see, the title says Global Economic Theories, a thought to look India. And a little about my background as well, I worked in the financial industry and uh, on the foreign exchange side, as well as the energy markets and the options and high, high frequency trading. I have a background in financial mathematics from University of Chicago and I've seen some of the professors there who indulge in, in rigging the market, in rigging the economic system as well. So this is based on a lot of experience and as the title says, the, the actual idea behind this is that every economic theory is a theory of looting India. And I'll explain why that is the case. So we should go back to the time of Adam Smith. Adam Smith did not oppose colonialism. In his book, you have an entire chapter on colonialism. He does make observations which can be interpreted as opposing colonialism and not treating Indians as equals. But that's because he has been, his argument is more based on the utilitarian perspective of what is good for the rulers themselves. But then he talks of why it is good to grant monopolies to East India Company and companies like this. And one of the points he makes is that without the monopolies, smaller nations like Sweden would not send out their ship. And apparently it, it um, encouraged adventurism. This was his argument. And the East India Company, of course, gave rise to mercantilism. Mercantilism was when they took all the uh, raw materials and the human resources from India and treated India as a market. And you see that this policy continues even today. There were navigation laws where the ships that had to be used for trade had to be uh, ships manufactured in the United Kingdom. So the Indian shipping industry was destroyed. There were many other monopolies, there were many kinds of taxes 
and then there was the history there's a history of manipulation of money as well they the british kept moving from gold to silver as and when it suited them for example in 1849 during the gold rush what happened is the value of gold started coming down so in 1852 dalhousie he changed the law where they would no longer accept gold as part of the tax payments into the treasury and once and until that continued until 1868 and then when silver price started falling in the early 90s early 1890s once again they were decided to demonetize silver because they didn't want the money that's given to them to have a lower value and and then there was of course uh, the reserve bank of india also uh, the proposal came in 1897 at the, during the currency committee the other things they did in the trade theory the so called trade theory which jagdish bhagwati uh, is a proponent of it originated in mercantilism because it's a no brainer if if the exports of east india company exceed the imports you are selling more than what you buy and that is your trade theory and you find all sorts of ways to manipulate to keep that going so what is good for a corporation is not necessarily good for the economy but then you have the trade theorists asking you to devalue the currency and they claim that's what is good for the country the other thing of course they, uh, there was slavery due to east india company and then the other theory of the 19th century is communism and we see that karl marx in his new york daily tribune article he actually called indian villages as semi barbarian semi civilized communi- communities and he justified british colonialism in india according to him the british colonialism was civilizing india it was a civilizing force and he even used abusive language calling the worship of nature and the adoration of hanuman all that was supposed to be a barbarian thing according to karl marx and i bring communism also as a theory of looting india i'll explain later in this talk how india supported the soviet communism and without india they would not have survived but before that we'll look at the history of christianity and how east india company was tied to christianity we never learned this because this is this is scrubbed from what's be, from, from our textbooks what we hear is that it's just capitalists who came to india out of their greed and they they looted india but in reality the first charter that was given to east india company was by queen elizabeth in 1600 what it said is to do to conduct trade in those areas of india without disturbing the other areas other christian other countries of christendom so portugal and dutch would not be disturbed that was the first charter this charter lasted for 15 years and then king james 1 after whom the king james bible is named he extended the charter he was the first one to and then conversion continued under him he was he was the person to name the first convert from india he called him peter that happened in 1616 by 1661 you had charles ii he actually granted the power to wage war against the non christians so this was to east india company so east india company was a wholly christian enterprise and again what happened in 1698 is william 3 he actually made it a condition for the charter extended to the east india company that each factory must have chaplains and these chaplains must learn indian languages 
within one year and start converting people, uh, Hindus to Protestant religion. And in 1813, it was open to missionaries. India was open to missionaries officially. And this was at the behest of Charles Grant, who was the director of East India Company. 1835, we are all familiar with the Macaulay education system, but that also attacked Hinduism of Sanskrit and astronomy. They called it rubbish and they imposed the New Testament on India. There were other things that the East India Company did, which were for the Christian world. For example, there was taxes. There were taxes for the pilgrims. Pilgrims to Jagannath temple and other temples were taxed. And even temples were taxed just for existing. So Hinduism was had to pay a penalty just for being Hindus. And the Dutch too, they, they used military force to force people to buy what they call the manufacturers of Christendom. And this was in the South Indian coast. Now the drain theory, we know uh, that, was, that was first by Dada by Nauroji, where India was treated as a source of raw material and all the wealth was drained out of in India. They would come back and sell the, sell the finished product. India also was a source of slaves. And Elihu Yale, after whom Yale University is named, actually kidnapped slaves. It was called slavery then. Later they termed it indentured labor, but even then they kidnapped people and took them. So uh, India was also a source of slavery. These policies continue to this day. The only difference is we see that people voluntarily go and work for the West now. The conditions have been created where we where people think that they are doing something great by going to the West. But if you did not go to the West, they would kidnap you and take you there and force you to work. And we know this from history. Okay, the next theory that's actually a theory of looting India is the Keynesian theory. According to this theory, there, there are economic cycles. There are ups and downs and during the down period, the government would actually do tax and spend and make up for the economy and therefore everything would be fine and dandy and this is the theory. This is of course not true. Usually what, what happens when they do it is it becomes worse but then the 1930s of United Kingdom, that, that is given as the example when this worked very well. But the reality is that the Keynesian economists never talk about is that the British controlled not only the uh, British, the United Kingdom, they also controlled India. So when they calculate the GDP, they don't calculate a combined GDP for the entire system. They were just transferring wealth from India to UK and then they claimed that it worked. And this, this worked because the, uh, Keynes worked in the India office. And he knew, he knew how to get the money out of India. And he was a master fundraiser, that is how his career advanced in the 1910s. And when Sterling was weak during the depression era following the crash of 1929, one of the things they did is they dealing the Sterling from gold. Because when it was, when it was tied to gold, it was rapidly depreciating. Instead, they tied it to the rupee. So what this means is what is happening today. Like today, there is a demand for US dollars because that's the global currency. And even when they print money, they don't face that much inflation like we face because now there's a global demand for the US dollar. 
and this happened in 2008 intuition tells us that the US dollar should have gone down because the US economy was in shambles but then it actually went up because during times of uncertainty every other country wanted to move to the US dollar and that created a demand so what is happening is that when we print money we face inflation when they print money we we absorb it we create the demand for them so it's it's socialized across the world so that is what the keynesian model did they delinked sterling from gold and linked it to the rupee so the demand would be created in india in 1931 and 32 they also shipped out a lot of gold out of india and there there used to be a condition that the indian government would be given loans run by the the indian government run by the british but then there was a uh, there was a condition that was imposed that the rupee supply had to be contracted and the reason was to have lower prices and higher interest rates in india by contracting the rupee they also imposed another condition during the round table conferences that a reserve bank of india would be set up the indian nationalists actually opposed it in 1929 they defeated a bill to set up the reserve bank of india and the condition uh, and the reason was that they did not trusted that it would serve the uh, british imperialist for decades to come and that is what has happened but then what happened in 1930s is during the round table conferences it was made a condition that the reserve bank of india must be set up and they somehow got it set up now this whole idea of tying the sterling to uh, rupee and also raising interest rates and devaluing the currency served as a template for the bretton woods regime so the the only thing what, what they did during the bretton woods regime is that for every loan that is given there's always a condition it's called the structural adjustment program any country that gets a loan must rates raise its interest rates they must devalue the currency this was this is how india got a loan to before it floated the rupee before the float when it was a fixed regime and again this is not a fair system and mahathir mohammed actually called them out on this in 1998 he asked why he said that they prescribe lower interest rates when the western economies go down but higher interest rates when the uh, malaysian economy was down and that's a very good question so if you want to strengthen if you want to boost investments and you want people to take loans and start businesses you should be lowering the interest rates so this was india was their test bed because in the keynesian era that's what they did they always attempted to raise interest rates and the reason they do this is when the foreign companies come in they don't want competition from indian companies so they invest here and with higher interest rates it's the small businesses actually find it tough to get some loans get loans at a competitive rate and this is this is how they destroyed latin america as well now rbi also has been subject to conditions imposed by imf and this is true that every time they give a loan they require rbi to make some regulatory changes whether it is 1970s or 1990s they keep doing that the bretton woods system created the us dollar dominance that all trade would take place in us dollar so that is that is the other thing they did and as we can see the world bank head can only be an american and imf can only be headed by a european that's an unwritten rule but that's that's the case
Now, communism, how it was supported by India. The Soviet Union had nothing, actually. They have uh, gas and crude oil, but then they depended on India for a lot of things, like fruits and uh, most of it was tea and tobacco is what they imported. But then we had the rupee-ruble trade, but the rupee-ruble trade was tagged against India. For example, one time when, when you could buy, the exchange rate was rigged, like instead of getting 32 rupees to the ruble, they would get 38. So there was a three-way play here between US dollar, ruble and rupee. And the mafias on both sides in India and in the, uh, and in the Soviet Union, they actually played, played this game. There were, there were scams where they, they would create these companies, fake companies on paper just to play with the currency. And the other thing that India did was to give arbitrarily high prices for the defense equipment. So it's a cash for clunker scheme. It's no wonder that, it's, it's no surprise that the Soviet Union collapsed right after the Indian, Indian economic crisis. And then once the Soviet Union collapsed, we had the WTO and the globalization regime. Now globalization is exactly the same as draining wealth and getting labor. So it continues the mercantilist policies of the 19th century. The only difference, of course, is slavery is replaced by voluntary servitude. You, you, you provide the labor, you provide the raw material, but the ownership is, of course, by the Western corporations, which make the profits. And the IMF loan for India too required higher interest rates and a devalued currency. So when, as soon you devalue the currency, because as soon as the foreign company comes in, their purchasing power in the near future is it's increased. They get more resources for the money they invest. One of the things Manmohan Singh did as part of the globalization of 1990s was to give 16% guaranteed profit to, to power companies like Enron. It's only the foreign, foreign companies, not Indian companies. The patent regime was tailored to help the West keep control. If you look at the WTO agreement, you will see that subsidies are banned, but then the Western companies continue to get subsidies because they have a loophole there. They have a loophole which says for research purpose you can, you can give money, you can give grants, but that is nothing but an indirect subsidy. You give it to the university and the corporation works with the university and they come out, they develop a drug. And then they even get, they get a patent even though it's taxpayer funded money. But if India subsidizes a pharmaceutical industry, it's going to face WTO sanctions. Now, one of the reasons that the Western economic models keep collapsing, they are all Ponzi schemes. So what happens, what the, the American system, it requires a future generation to bail out the current generation. It's completely debt driven. For example, their social security requires an expanding population to fund the retired people. Otherwise, it's going to fail. The population, the next generation has to have a higher number of people than the previous generation. Now, this is why they, they want more immigration of Mexicans. Otherwise, the banks will collapse, social security will collapse. This is not out of love for humanity that they, they encourage immigration now. It is purely to support the banks. And since the 1970s, you will see that the US has been on life support. Every 10 years or so, 
they've had a bailout. They had an airline industry bailout in the 1970s. In the 1980s, there was what was called the savings and loan crisis, uh, where the small investment firms were, um, were going under. They, they had to be bailed out. And then in, uh, in 1990, the long-term capital management, a hedge fund, failed. It, it threatened to take down the entire banking system. And so there was another bailout then. And of course, again in 2008 and 9, we saw the bailout with the mortgage crisis. Now that bailout scheme is what they have perfected. What, what they want to do is to create, to make India pay the next bailout. And this is, this is the other, other reason that every economic theory is a theory of looting India. And the way they are doing it will come to that. But before that, look at, look at how the, the Western systems are designed. They do not want people to be self-sufficient. They want people to be dependent on the system. So what it means is that the, the healthcare will be based on insurance. They drive up the costs. So you will have to be dependent on insurance for healthcare. They drive up the cost of the education system so that you are dependent on the banks again and you have to take student loans. And the way they did this is until the 1980s, the education system was affordable. You could work your way through college. If you look at the literature back then, you will see that you could actually work your way through college. But then what happened is the government started underwriting the loans. And, they, and in tandem, the universities decided no matter what, what level they raise the tuition fees to, the government is anyway going to underwrite the loans and they get paid for it. And so the, the, the students got caught in a debt trap. They, they got talked into taking a loan saying that you need a college education to, to, come, to move forward in life. So they had no choice. They took a loan. The loan was actually underwritten by the government. And so the universities raised the tuition. So th right now, that is another crisis in the United States. Healthcare, of course, has compuls compulsory insurance so that the insurance companies can make money. Now there's a plan that they want a few people controlling everything. They see everything as to be manufactured by large factories. This is very similar to the communist way of thinking, that there will be large factories controlled by the government. The only thing here is that they, they will still have large factories controlled by a few people. And most, most of the people, they see in a very dehumanizing way, where you're just cogs in the wheel of a massive system. And the bailout scheme that they have perfected and how they target India is through Basel III. So Basel III, they, they call for the stress tests of banks. And the real reason is that they want banks to be bailed out in future. They know their, their system is going to collapse. This is, the, this is how their system is built. Every few years it collapses. But next bailout is going to come from the international world. The way it starts is initially they say you have to have a reserve to bail out your banks and it's all, it's not mandatory. It's voluntary. The next step will be to sign a treaty and make it mandatory and then we have to contribute to an international system. So we need to guard against this. And the new global system that's been proposed, it's going to have the IMF SDRs, that's the special drawing rights, as the new currency. In fact, the head of IMF during a recent Singapore, during the conference in Singapore recently, a couple of months back or so, proposed that, a new, that once again reiterated that IMF SDR should be a global currency. They will create a banking transaction tax so that it's all automated and then we can, it's under their control.
there's also the idea of cashless currency but this one this idea is actually something very dangerous because it's based in the idea of having negative interest rates Lawrence Summers who is an economist in the US he's worked he is now in Harvard University he's worked for the government as well he actually proposed a system of negative interest rates so what it means is you deposit some money in a bank after a while you see that your total value has come down and the reason for this is they don't like savings they want a consumption based economy but then if you have if you see negative interest rates you are not going to put your money in a bank you are going to withdraw your money and keep it at home but to prevent that they have come up with the idea of cashless currency so th this is this is an extremely dangerous idea and they are targeting india for this and the way they are doing it is through usaid usaid is involved in a lot of advisory um, project uh, advisory roles and also in implementing some projects they were involved in aadhar card and we have to be extremely careful of anything that comes from them their goal is eventual control over indian citizens and of course indian uh, uh, the food as well the food sources will be controlled through companies like monsanto which is of course it's bayer monsanto is now bayer because monsanto had a bad name i guess the brand it's better to use the brand name bayer now we need to know some of the changes how they originated you know vat and gst they originated in oecd reports they use the term terms vat and gst interchangeably and they want every country to move to a vat or gst based regime and the goal is that eventually there will be once again a treaty so they can have a centralized tax system it's all uniform around the world one of the points that oecd acknowledged is that gst will hurt small businesses more than it hurts the large businesses a company like amazon or walmart will be able to absorb the costs of implementing it but a company that's a small shop will now face an additional burden other of course it's supported by usaid and bill gates foundation and then another idea is that's part of the new system is universal basic in income they probably they would want 50% around 50% of the population to be on welfare all the time and this is going to destroy india because once you have universal basic income it's like a reservation scheme you can never roll it back there are going to be riots to, uh, demanding we want to be included in the scheme and eventually everyone is going to be dependent on the system and no longer self sufficient they are also taking over the the lending the the lending sector in india the small lenders are being destroyed in villages and the village economics all requires the small lenders and the way it's being done is that non the so called non profit organizations like basex which is supported by ford foundation they lend money and they don't pay tax on their profits and the money lender cannot compete with them there's one more thing that's climate change which is which has nothing to do with the environment it has everything to do with a permit raj they have something called cap and trade where capping is the same as a permit selling permits and the trade is that india has to buy these permits from the west there are people like al gore who have already hoarded up these permits they are just waiting for legislation to make this permit legitimate so that is that is the scheme they have with the climate change 
Now, some of the things we need to know is about the narratives of existing systems. We are presented two choices, capitalism and socialism. But in reality, they are two sides of the same coin. If you carefully look at them, there is no difference between the two structurally. They have the st same structures, it's just the people change, the ownership of who runs the system changes. Instead of the government running the system, the same people run the system by sitting in Goldman Sachs or one of the other, uh, other private entities. But it's all one massive banking scheme, a massive government, 50% of people on welfare, people, the government paying out 50% of people because that is their army in case, in case there's a revolution, this is how they want to protect themselves. And socialism has never been about the poor, it's about control. We would not oppose if you are really limiting to 10% of the population who really need to be helped and you gave them a helping hand, that's probably a good thing. But it's not about that. And which is why you see it's always universal healthcare or universal education. It's never just for the poor. They never say it's for the poor, it's, it's, for, it's universal. They want to control you. And in their system, Businesses have zero risk because every time there's a loss and they collapse, there's going to be a bank, there's going to be a bailout. The other reason why capitalism and socialism do not apply to us is it's really a Catholic versus Protestant system. And Karl Marx has written about it that Catholics are about giving and Protestants are about taking. And the Protestants used to talk about free market quite a bit as opposed to the church control. And it's, it's just minor differences between the two in details. And some of the uh, economists who are pushing the agenda for a new economic system to replace the Bretton Woods system, whom I call the Cooley economists, and one of them is Raghuram Rajan, who has written in Project Syndicate that we need a new economic system. Uh, that is actually an admission that the existing economic system is a failure. And the existing economic system of IMF and World Bank, it has, it has served their purpose. They are no longer able to use it to get money from India. And therefore, they need a new system. Because India's last loan was in 1991. It no longer needs their loans. But, the, but when, they, when the European economy was in crisis, they wanted India to give 500 million dollars as a grant, not a loan. When India got the money, it was supposed to be a loan, but when Europe wanted the money, it was supposed to be a grant. We gave 3 billion, right? So, Gandhi made Manmohan give 3 billion. Yes. During the EU crisis. Right, during the EU crisis. India promised. India promised that. I'm not sure if it was given. 3 billion euros. Right? 3 billion euros. Yeah, so the, India has always been a source of supporting the West. And the project syndicate, we need to be careful about it because people like Gordon Brown, former Prime Minister, they are part of it. They are very much part of it. They know what they are doing. And Raghuram Rajan and his friends who have been attacking us for saying that RBI is not, does not have freedom. What kind of freedom is he talking about? He wants freedom from the Indian government, but not from IMF. The same, the same Raghuram Rajan or the other Urjit Patel or whoever is in power, they, they are going to go to IMF and discuss with them and be accountable to the West and implement their agenda. In fact, they should be forbidden from doing it. 
It's our country after all, it's not their country. So if you want to have, as I said, the interest rates here, it should be on our terms, not on their terms. And the other economists like Jagdish Bhagavati, he was the loudest cheerleader for WTO's globalization regime. The trade theory we've already seen has origins in the mercantilism of East India Company, where you say the profit of East India Company exports is greater than imports. That's the only thing they know. Exports is greater than imports. You, you devalue your currency and th that's all they know to do. And Arvind Subramanian asked USA to file a complaint against India to WTO. There are two more economists, Amartya Sen and Kaushik Basu. The only thing they do is they push the Western agenda. Kaushik Basu does not talk anything about economics. He keeps attacking India and especially the Hindus. Now there's one, one economist we have to be concerned about is past action. Who, that's Rajiv Kumar, who signed an MOU with USAID to expand their activities in India. This was right when Russia expelled 3,000 employees of USAID and USAID was asked to leave the, uh, to leave Russia because they were part of CIA and they were, in, they were part of the CIA activities. Now there's one problem India has which is to respect the West and that is very important we not do that because the Western economic and finance system fraud and rigging are rampant. The entire system is rigged and you can never win against them. If they, if they lose, they will bail out. And that is, the, that is the reality. They can never lose. And when you lose, they are going to preach free market to you. And they are going to say risk and whatever, whatever theory they have. And the, the reason not, not to be enamored by them is to understand that their wealth is only because of one reason, they control the global currency. They can print the US dollar as much as they want, give it to themselves for free, but a Chinese or an Indian or any other a person in any other country has to really work hard to get every single dollar. But they get it for free. The US dollar has actually depreciated more than 97% since 1900. Probably it's, that's uh, 10 years back, it's probably 98% now. And the reason they don't feel the pinch is that US dollar is the global currency. They print it, they give money and the entire world works for them and sends the goods and services. They, they give the paper in return. And of course the inflation of US dollar is prevented because of the demand from other countries. Now there's one more way that NGOs, that, that NGOs hurt the Indian economy. They indulge in the economic activities without paying tax. And what happens when this when NGOs do that, is legitimate businesses, which are self-sustaining businesses, based on their profits, they, they collapse because they cannot compete against such subsidized businesses which don't pay their tax. By definition, we should make sure that charities have no strings attached. They can give money, they cannot take back money. So this is, for example, the microfinance industry microfinance NGOs. They can, they, can give, they can give money and they should forget about it. And then we have to look at the centralized versus the decentralized systems. Everything in the West is centralized. Everything from their God to the way they create their government and their economic system. Universities. Universities are actually monopolies. Our, our system was the Gurukul system which was distributed. So everything is a centralized system. And that is the way to think of it. They came up with a central bank. 
the RBI, which is a centralized institution. In reality, the interest rate should be set by the market at the local level de depending on the local conditions. And the concentration of financial power as well as the corporate power, it is due to the existence of a central bank. If you, if you look at the General Accounting Office document from 1900, you will find something very interesting, which is that whenever the interest rates are lowered, the community banks and the small banks collapse. In the past five years alone in the United States, 1,300 community banks have collapsed because the interest rates have been kept artificially low. And during times when they raise the interest rates, small businesses cannot compete against the large businesses because they are now paying higher interest rates for the loan. So you should not have either a higher rate or a lower rate which, which is artificial. And they don't hide it. They, call it. they call it slowing down the economy when they raise interest rates. So when they slow down the economy, they don't mean that they are collapsing Walmart or Intel or Microsoft. What they mean is the small businesses will shut down and, and hence the economy will slow down. Now if you look at the ancient Indian system, it was not all centralized. The Varna system was actually a system of separation of powers. People who were in the production, that is manufacturing and agriculture, they, did not, they were separate from the ruling class, they were, which was also separate from the people who controlled knowledge. They were not supposed to abuse and get involved in these, the other activities and the financial power. So these were the four different types of powers and there was a healthy separation of powers. The jatis were economic girls. There were rules to prevent the oligopolies, like especially by marriage, you could end up with an oligopoly. So there were some rules around that as well. To, to see the exact opposite, today what we see is American universities like Harvard and the University of Chicago. They are part of the power structure. They write the rules, they write the laws, they get the money, they, they get the uh, grants for businesses, they get grants for research, they they draft the law. So it is, it is the exact opposite of what we see here, what we saw in our ancient system. The tax system in India too was, was a healthy system. It was one-sixth of the production in peacetime and a quarter during wartime, 25% during wartime. And we need the Swadeshi way. And what is the Swadeshi way? This is not blind import substitution. And that is a caricature that's been going on. Swadeshi means it's self-sufficient, productive society. And, uh, and it's not a consumerist society without producing anything, which is what they want, the West wants India to do. So they can, they can put us on, a, on, on welfare and dependent on them. Swadeshi also means decentralized and based in self-organization, as opposed to the centralized systems of the West. Swadeshi encourages savings rather than consumption. So what we need is a, uh, an economic policy. We should explore tax structure at the production level. And the reason for this is that GST has originated with OECD. GST is not bad. It's, it's been called the fair tax. But the very fact that it originated at OECD and they have acknowledged that small businesses could be 
hurt means we should ex explore a way to shield ourselves from the detrimental effects of this. And one group that actually advocated tax at production was the Jansang in 1971 and in the late 1960s the Jansang actually was opposed to sales tax. They said it causes harassment and we need to have all taxes at the production level. We should also remove the gold controls because the natural tendency of Hindus and Indians is to go for gold and that creates stability in the system. It will of course slow down the growth but then growth is another form of saying bubble. So in the western system what they call growth is actually creating a bubble that actually collapses. And we need to encourage savings. There are other things that the government could do like infrastructure projects and government contracts could be used to, to encourage a system where we have a large number of small businesses rather than small number of large businesses. So I think I'll end my talk here.